And our current series is Reframe. And Stan, who is off preaching in Seattle, he ended his message last week with a list of sorts, and I wanted to review them. He said, oh, if we could be honest, curious, courageous, grateful, humble, and loving, that these are better creeds, that these are creeds of the heart. So we have been talking about not just deconstructing our faith, but now focusing on reconstructing and reframing our spirituality and thus reframing our lives, reframing our view of self, our view of God, reframing then our actions and our responsibilities to ourselves, God, and to our world. And so I wanted to take my time this morning and talk about a concept that most of us have already reframed, but then tease it out a little bit more. You've heard us say over and over and over again that you are beloved. You are beloved. Right smack dab in the middle of our who we are statement at Grace Point, which you can always find on the website. It reads this, it says, God loves us immensely and is not to be feared. At Grace Point, we believe that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection teach us who we are, the beloved children of God. It goes on to say, we love God best when we fulfill our lives' purpose of loving ourselves and others. And so this idea then of being the beloved, I wonder this morning if I can offer a fresh analogy to it. So may we deconstruct then the idea that at our core we are wretched sinner. At our core, we are lowly humans. And instead, can we reconstruct or reframe ourselves as brilliant diamonds with capacity not yet tapped into? Brilliant diamonds. Think about what a diamond is for a second. Diamonds are among nature's most precious and most beautiful creations. Diamonds start out with being carbon, and then they are crafted out of high pressure, and then when they are presented, they become this multifaceted thing that brilliantly reflects light. First quote of the day. You know I like quotes. Under pressure, she became a diamond. Under pressure, she or he became unbreakable. Unbreakable. At our last coffee and conversation last month, it was over at the office, and this subject came up, this very subject, and someone said a very peculiar statement. They said, if we can only know how amazing we are as individuals, if we could only start with that. And then someone in turn said, yes, yes, if we could know that we bear divinity, that we are in fact divine. Now, we're not apt to say these things about ourselves. Instead, we often feel like we have to put down our humanity. So when someone asks the question to you, who do you think you are? It's often said in a derogatory tone, and then our answer then is, yes, 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 sorry, I thought too highly of myself, right? But what I believe God is trying to tell us, and in the life of Jesus, Jesus was trying to tell us that you don't think highly enough of yourself. You don't recognize who you truly are. And as the Christian church, we have got caught up in our frailty We've got caught up in our mistakes. We've got caught up in our sin. And I'm going to come back to sin in just a few moments and talk about it. But we have looked down upon ourselves. We have low expectations of our humanity in general. A dear friend of mine, Pastor Joshua Scott, who pastors a church, a progressive church over in Bowling Green, Kentucky. You think it's hard to be a progressive in Williamson County. Go to Kentucky, okay? 
He's doing such great work over there. And he wrote a blog that I reposted a couple of weeks ago. A couple of us did. But in the blog, he said, let's think about the phrase we use, I'm only human. He said, think about it. Think about when we use it. It's never after we score the touchdown. It's never after we rock the presentation. It's never after we graduate the top of our class. It's never when we make the best guacamole you've ever tasted, right? We don't say it then. We say I'm only human when we fumble the snap. We say it when we crash and burn in front of our entire work department. We say it when we're one credit short of graduating. We say it when we burn the toast. He says, we say I'm only human, right? We associate our humanness with failure. We associate our humanness with deficiency and with error. And these are things, they are a part of what it means to be a human. And yet all of those things do not define what it means to be human. That's the difference. And Josh went on to say, we continually create new ways to divide and categorize ourselves out from each other. Yet, if we say before we say we're a particular nationality or ethnicity, before we say we're a particular religion or political party, gay or straight, we are human. This is the one label that we all share and it is supremely good. Now let's think about that for a second, because with traditional Christianity, with what most of us grew up in, the doctrines, the concepts, the prayers and the songs that we have come up with and held on to, they have come from a selective reading of our scripture. Let's think about it for a second. Let's look at Psalm 51. Psalm 51, this is when David is speaking. It's right after he's just had an affair with Bathsheba. And he says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in my inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. It goes on to say, create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the gift, the joy of your salvation, and sustain in me a willing spirit. So David right here, he was fearful He's crying out to God. He is dealing with grief over his mistakes. And that is honest. That is real. And we've all been there to some extent where we realize that we have done wrong. And yet we have taken these texts, texts similar to this, and we have made blanket statements about humanity. We did it with Genesis 3 as well. We went right to Genesis 3. We went right to Eve's mistake and sin and turned that into a statement about humanity, that we are innately sinners. And we skipped right over Genesis 1 where the story goes that God created male and female and he called humanity supremely good, that we are innately good. Now, We would not take David's act of stealing another man's wife as law than for men for all time. Certainly not. And yet we have taken this emotionally prompted words and we've given them central place in our theology. Think about it. Think about the prayers and the songs that we have sung within the church growing up. They don't start with a beloved child who then makes mistakes. They start with a wretched sinner who is at the core unworthy. 
Think about singing a song like, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Stop. A wretch. John Newton, who wrote that song, okay, he felt very wretched. He was a slave trader, a slave owner. And when he came to himself and finally said, this is not who I am and who I want to remain to be with Christ inside of my life, then he wrote this song. He poured out his heart and he felt wretched, yes. But we have taken that song to mean that we are wretched at our core. And there's a huge difference Realizing that as the beloved, as someone bearing the divinity of Christ, that yes, we still have the capacity to make horrible decisions, but that is not who we are. Do you see the difference? Other songs. Um, How deep the Father's love for us. You know this? How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. See, this is what we believed about ourselves. This is a part of our story. Think about victory in Jesus, okay? You guys love hymns. You tell me about it all the time. I heard an old, old story. Come on. How a Savior came from glory. How he gave his life on Calvary to save a You want to do a hymn sing around here? I'm happy to sing these songs as long as you realize that this theology, this doctrine reinforces an unhealthy view of self, an unhealthy view of self. So we could go on and on with these songs, right? This is just an example, though, of what we have believed most of us and what we need to deconstruct. But now, let's get on to reframing. Let's look at another text, Psalm 8. This is in drastic opposition to the wretched sinner's mentality. This, this psalm is, is titled Divine Majesty and Human Dignity. Oh Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouths of babes and infants. You have founded a bulwark, a defensive wall. That's what that means, because of your foes, to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are humans that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? He's asking an important question, and here's the answer, yet. And that's such an important word. Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet. See, this this scripture, this speaks of this brilliant diamond that is inside each and every human life. This speaks of our worth and our dignity as a human born with the image of God inside of us, with divinity inside of us. Listen to this by G.K. Chesterton. There is at the back of all of our lives an abyss of light, more blinding and unfathomable than any abyss of darkness. He says, and it is the abyss of actuality, of existence, of the fact that things truly are, and that we ourselves are incredibly and sometimes almost incredulously real. For he who has realized this reality knows that it does outweigh literally to all infinity, all lesser regrets or arguments for negation, and that under all our rumblings, there is a subconscious substance of gratitude. That light of the possibility 
positive is the business of poets because they see all things in light of it more than do other men. He goes on to say, at the back of our brains, there was a forgotten blaze, a burst of astonishment at our own existence. The object of the artistic and spiritual life was to dig for this submerged sunrise of wonder. The object of our spiritual lives was to dig for this submerged sunrise of wonder. Oh, that we could see this abyss of light inside each and every one of us, this diamond buried deep inside. And may we learn how to mine this diamond, this goodness, this light, this love. And so I ask you again, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? For the kingdom of heaven is inside of you. St. Catherine of Genoa, she used to run through the streets of her, her town saying, my deepest me is God. My deepest me is God. Oh, do we believe that about ourselves? Because also the writer of Colossians says, Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. This is you. So can we claim and affirm this truth of our wholeness now? that there is a you greater than your smallness. I tell my kids all the time when they make mistakes, this is not who we are. This is not who we are. We say to the inmates when we go to these prisons, we say you are a beloved child of God. You just maybe don't know it yet. You maybe don't know it yet. You've been acting the part of weakness, but you really are strong. Accept this God self in you and now go and sin no more. You are the beloved, so now become the beloved. Become the beloved. See, we all need higher learning. We need, as Stan talked about a couple of weeks ago when he was talking about Mary ending up back at the feet of Jesus, that we need to remain teachable, to remain that God is still the teacher. We still need to remain humble and expandable and realize that this world is our home and its knowledge then is our resource, but its evil is our challenge. Its evil is our challenge. We need to recognize that we are at times expressing ourselves incompletely, that we are strong people frustrating our potential strength, that there is that of you that is stronger than your weakness, there is that of you that is wiser than your foolishness, that is better than your mistakes and my mistakes. The writer, Goethe, it's German. I'm sure you're supposed to say Goethe or something, but <laughs> look at this. <laughs> Listen, if you treat an individual as he is, he will remain how he is. But if you treat him as if he were what he ought to be and could be, he will become what he ought to be and could be. That's truth right there. And so we reframe you and we reframe me, okay? And then this process of salvation, this process of coming home to who we are in God, this salvation then is for all dimensions of the human life and for all creation. So reframing you and me, that's reframing the diamond inside of us. That means that we can get away from those labels that divide us. But it will not stop us though from being called to the good fight to tell each and every human being that they are welcome at this table that they deserve a place at this table, that they have a seat that no one can take away. So we will call them to this fight. So to seek the world's salvation, that is our calling. 
the day when finally God's kingdom will be made present and fully on the earth. And that's going to come by God's grace and our faithfulness. By God's grace and our faithfulness. It's that Hebrew idea of shalom that we talk about all the time. A sense of completeness and soundness and harmony with all. And so I ask you, if you and when you and I find that we don't have harmony with our life, we don't have harmony in our mind and in our spirit, if you sense something is off, that you are not reflecting this light that you know that you have, if you're sensing that that pressure is forming, I ask that you pay attention to it. I've had so many conversations lately with many people who are realizing that they have this pressure building up and yet the solution then is to self-medicate. And self-medication can happen in many ways, right? It can happen with food, it can happen with laziness, it can happen by us not desiring to do anything about this pressure, it can happen with alcohol, it can happen in many, many ways. That list can go on and on. But when we self-medicate, you and I, we're trying to treat a behavior, we're trying to treat the pressure, or maybe we're just wanting to ignore all of it. And yet I want us to realize that these behaviors, this pressure that we're feeling, it's symptoms of ultimately how we view ourselves. Ask yourself, who do I think I am? Who do I think I am? And so we need to then listen to this pressure. We need to mine that diamond. And we're going to miss the mark in the process, which is the very definition of sin, missing the mark. But if we can use our mistakes, if we can, as Richard Rohr says, fall upward, if we can realize that nothing will be wasted in the economy of God, if we could let those things teach us, that is how we will mine the diamond inside of us. This diamond then will reflect that honesty, curiosity, courage, humility, gratitude, and love. We believe those are the key elements for being the beloved community and living out then the abundant life. It's not about the fixed set of doctrines. We believe if we can get those things right, that then everything else will fall into place. Jesus gave us a glimpse of what the immortal diamond looks like. He gave us a glimpse of what our life could look like, an abundant life. See, the first disciples, they were transformed by their experience with Jesus. They weren't transformed by doctrines. So I wanna tell you and remind you and me to not be afraid of our own experience. In fact, I wanna tell you, do not be afraid, period. Scripture says over and over and over, do not be afraid. And these were a fearful people. They feared God and they feared judgment. And I've noticed when we become a fearful people, when we operate out of a sense of fear, that's when we live closed off. That's when we live in states of depression. That's when we recognize that fear then will cloud our hope. I've watched it play out with many people around me. It's when fear happens. You live with clenched fist. You are worrying and you are anxious. You're defensive and you're constantly pushing back. But instead, if we can operate out of a sense of peace, then you find yourself not with clenched fists, but with open hands. You find yourself full of a graciousness for yourself and your own mistakes and a grace for others as well. You realize then that there is freedom. But with freedom comes responsibility. 
With freedom comes a need for self-awareness. And notice, though, that awareness is not judgment. Awareness is not judgment. When you realize, though, that your actions, that they are affecting you, that they have consequences, that your actions can also affect the others around you, that's not judgment. That's healthy awareness. That's called conviction. And conviction is healthy. That's not legalistic. Conviction is having a conscience. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. People ask us all the time as the leadership here, so you have this new progressive theology. You have this idea that we can be whoever we are. So then what do you think about sin? Is there no sin? They ask questions like, um, if you have this freedom, then do you not believe in moral or have morality or have ethical boundaries? And our answer is yes. Yes, we do. Then they say, what is freedom then? Freedom is not licensed to live without restraints. Hear me. Freedom is not licensed for us to live without restraints. Freedom is the inward motivation to tame this spiritual power that is in us, to harness our divine potential, and to move then in the direction of our highest good. The philosopher and poet Johann Schiller says this, freedom is not doing what we like, but becoming what we should. It's not doing what we like, it's becoming what we should. Henry Nouwen says, when you are interiorly free, you call others to freedom. Whether you realize it or not, freedom attracts wherever it appears. A free man or a free woman creates a space where others feel safe and want to dwell. See, realize this Christ standard in us is not a restraint. Hear me. This Christ standard inside of us is not a restraint. If we would only believe that. So then what is sin? Sin is this then disconnection from who we are meant to be. It's falling short of the mark of God's aims for our lives. It's not recognizing or mining this diamond. Sin means living falsely then, contrary to our belovedness. We sin when we are not seeing things the way they truly are. Thus then, we do not understand the full consequence of our actions. And so sinning can be simply not paying attention. Sin can be not realizing that we are then causing suffering to ourselves or to others. See, we all have it in us to knowingly do harm. But it's also equally sinful, I believe, for us to fail to live up to this potential grandness. And so we're not getting rid of sin, but we are getting rid of shame. Huge difference. We are, are not getting rid of consequences or of consciousness, but we are getting rid of judgment. That's why, again, I say when my child sins, I'm not judging that one choice against the whole of their little life. I say it's not who you are, and then it's my part as, as being a parent to try to help correct that. But then for you and I as adults then, we have to be our own directive. You are the one that will ultimately be able to correct the mistakes in your life, and you should feel the responsibility to do so. One of our elders, Paul Johnson, and I had lunch a couple weeks ago, and I always enjoy my time with him. And he said this beautiful thing. He said, a life well lived leaves beauty behind it, not a trail of destruction with debris. And so I ask myself and I ask you, what trail are you leaving behind? Pay attention. 
to what trail you are leaving behind. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Herschel says this, sin is a refusal of humans to become who we are. A refusal to become who we are. Hildegard of Vengeance said, sin is this drying up, it's carelessness, it's a lack of passion. And so we need to reframe and start with reframing you and reframing me. And then we need to pay attention to how and if we are living below our means and below our capacity. Because the other option is to actualize our lives May we know that life is a gift. May we know it. May we know that we have a full birthright and inheritance as a child of God. And then let us live out of that. Let us savor it. See, there is a great depth of splendor within us, but it must be unfolded. And that's going to come through self-realization and through self-discipline. There is no shortcut to the kingdom. There is no shortcut to that brilliant diamond inside of you and inside of me. So Jesus showed us this truthful way of life. He gave us an extended invitation to the cosmic dance of spirituality. He showed us what a life well-lived looks like. Henry Nouwen makes this beautiful distinction between the beloved and becoming the beloved. He's saying we have to choose this. It's up to you and me. He says becoming the beloved means letting the truth of our belovedness become enfleshed in everything we think, say, or do. When our deepest truth is that we are the beloved and when our greatest joy and peace comes from fully claiming that truth, it follows then that this will become visible in tangible ways, in the ways we eat and drink, the ways that we talk and love, the ways that we play and we work, it will become visible. Another way to healthy self-awareness, a way to mine this diamond that is inside of us is to keep looking for people or for places where your truth is spoken, where you are reminded of your deepest identity as this brilliant diamond, as this amazing soul. And oh, I pray and hope that this community is that for you. But I pray and hope we would realize that we as individuals have that call as well. Be a reminder of someone else's truth. Speak blessing over people. To give someone a blessing, to speak blessing is the most significant affirmation we can offer. To give a blessing is to say yes to their belovedness. See, we have a lot of mutual admiration going around. We also have a lot of mutual condemnation going around. But we don't have a lot of mutual blessing. And blessing then is not about virtues and it's not about vices. It's speaking to the core of someone. It touches the original goodness of a person and then calls forth his or her belovedness. It says, you are a diamond and I am too. And us humbly being confident in saying that. You are a diamond, and I am too. I've talked about it before, but the Hindu greeting where they put their hands together and they bow to each other and they say namaste, they're saying the divinity in me sees the divinity in you. And truth is truth is truth. May we find ways to speak and to say with people, I see you. I see the core of who you are. I see you, not your mistakes. We're not talking about mistakes. We're talking about your center and your core. I see you and may my life call you to live out of your truth and may you do the same for me then.
May you do the same for me. If we can live then in and out of our truth, it will allow us to let go then of what distracts us. It will allow us to more easily let go what confuses us. It will remember that it is our call to recover our original freedom then, to recover our child-likeness, but never childish wisdom. There's a difference. We want to be childlike, not childish. Be childlike, not childish. To be human then has an intrinsic goodness in it and to it. And we can choose to live that into that identity. And this transformation then that we can experience from our false self, from wearing our mask to then becoming our truest best selves, or we can choose to give in to our worst impulses. We can choose to reject our calling to be God's image bearers in this world. But we were made for transcendence. Each and every one of us, we were made for transcendence, but we can get in the way of ourselves. We have to choose to mine that diamond. We have to pay attention to the pressures of our life, and then we have to choose to dig deep. No more shallow living for you or for me. Because to live shallow, that means we're living beneath us. And shallow living, then we have to ask, what does that mean? Are, you or, are my actions or my words do they have emotional depth to them? Do they have intellectual depth? Am I being superficial? These are hard questions. It's hard to face our pride. It's hard to look in the mirror and say, who am I and how am I living? But asking ourselves this, are we mining the depth of our own soul and our own reason and wisdom and judgment? In this circumstance, am I acting out of a scarcity mentality? Because a shallow life is a meaningless life. It's a meaningless life. Look at this quote by Anais Nin where she says, I must be a mermaid. I have no fear of depths and I have a great fear of shallow living. Can we say that? Can we speak that affirmation, write it on a postcard and tape it to our mirrors each day? I have no fear of depths, but I have a great fear of shallow living. In Ecclesiastes, which is this wisdom literature found in the Hebrew Bible and in our Old Testament, in this book, the writer, he is speaking against the conventional wisdom of his day. He's speaking actually against Proverbs, which was written, and it's full of this conventional wisdom that says, if you do this, then this will happen. If you do this, then this will happen. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is actually saying, no, all that's going to happen no matter what. So in the meantime, can you live fully? Can you be present to life, whatever it is, whatever is in front of us? The teaching of Ecclesiastes, it's very similar to the teaching of the Tao Te Ching, which some of you might be familiar with. But they both are saying, can we live in a way that we are not grasping? Can we live in a way that we are not grasping? And yet that's how most of us live most of the time. We grasp. We grasp by seeking easy uh, satisfactions. We grasp, and grasping is futile. Marcus Borg in his book, Reading the Bible Again for the First Time, he says when the writer of Ecclesiastes is speaking of death, which he does a lot in the book, if you'll go back and read some of Ecclesiastes this afternoon, he speaks a lot of death and Marcus Borg says, it's not to be morbid, for death is the teacher of wisdom. Death is the master who teaches us how to live. So when the writer of Ecclesiastes says, remember your grave in the days of your youth, he's not being pessimistic. He's saying the belief of the awareness of death teaches us then what is important about life. What is important about life? Richard Rohr says grace is found at the depths and in the death of everything. 
And once you go into these depths, once you feel death, then resurrection is waiting on the other side. And he correlates resurrection, Roar does, with the showing up of our truth selves. It's with the immortal diamond that is in each and every one of us. So I want to invite Josh and the singers back up. And as they do, I want us to look at this verse together in Ecclesiastes. Seize life. Eat bread with gusto. Drink wine with a robust heart. Somebody say amen. amen. Oh, yes. God, listen, God takes pleasure in your pleasure. Dress festively every morning. Don't skimp out on colors and scarves. Relish life with the spouse you love. Each and every day of your precarious life, each day is God's gift. It's all you get in exchange for the hard work of staying alive. Make the most of each one. Whatever turns up, grab it and do it and heartily. To live life heartily, that means we live strongly, not tentatively. That means we live deep and not shallow. That means we live fully, not holding back. True wisdom is carpe diem. Let us seize the day. Don't miss it. Don't let it slip by unnoticed. Don't live in a fog. Don't waste it by chasing the wind. So if you find then that you are pursuing artificial goals, if you are living under false standards, if you are conforming to acceptable patterns in the world around us, then may we repent. And repent simply means to return home. May we return home to who we actually are, to resolve to turn our face towards that diamond and make every step of our life go in that direction. Jesus said in John 8, 32, you shall know the truth and it will set you free. It will set you free. So this way of Jesus, it's not about a belief, a set of beliefs about Jesus. It was about a path of transformation. So in the life of Jesus, in the incarnation, Jesus is showing us that we can also embody this way, this truth, and this life. Eric Butterworth said in his book, Discover the Power Within, he says, we must begin to see Jesus as the great discoverer of the innate divinity of man, the supreme revealer of the truth about humanity, the pioneer, the way shower in the quest for self-realization and self-unfoldment. And so we reframe you and me as beloved, and then we reframe our responsibility to this inheritance. It's as if Jesus is saying, let me lead you into this wonderful world of the Christ within you where you will know and know that you know that you know that you are a limitless expression of the infinite. But you and I, we must make that affirm affirmation of the truth inside of us. Let me end by reading this poem by James Rhodes. It says, again, that voice which on my listening ears falls like star music filtering through the spheres. Know this, O oh man, sole root of sin in thee is not to know thine own divinity. O oh soul of mine, a glorious shrine, wherein to house thee and where through to shine, or here or in my mansion's crystalline, serenely changeless, dazzling divine. Know this diamond that is inside you and me. Can you say amen?